Good morning, or good day, should I say. Today, I'll be reading a book, and this is not to take away from the author, but I am going to read it with hopes that it will one day reach my children and my grandchildren. So this is not to publish, and um, it's only to share so that they can hear it while they're traveling when they're not able to read it and do not have um, Kindle. So the book is titled, Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? And today, I just found it prominent as I started reading the book that um, the Lord placed it upon my heart to share. Today is the 8th of June, as um, 2020, excuse me, and as most of you all may realize as you hear this, that we're coming uh, into maybe phase one, two, or three for some cities, um, for some states in, in the COVID-19 pandemic. And we've also been dealing with riots and as a lot of the leaders search for a way to reach people and um, um, they're talking about, you know, this has got to end, but we have to end it with some sort of unity. When I heard about this book, I said, this um, topic per se totally discredits everything that um, we um, as a black race have been, you know, uh, I guess seesawing about or, you know, just tiptoeing around to say Christianity, is that our foundation? Is the Nation of Islam our foundation? But whatever our faith base is, we still have to, as a black race, come together in some sort of unity. So when I saw the title of this book, it struck interest, and let me um, just move on with sharing. So the book is entitled, Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? How the Bible is Good News for All for People of Color. And the author is Antipas L. Harris, so if you'd like to buy it, by all means, please support his work. Chapter 1 and I'll try not to go too long because I know we'll lose interest after we go too long. But chapter one, the striking question, and there's a quote first. Race in America is a form of religious faith and we will never be able to understand or address it with the necessary knowledge, energy, or commitment until we comprehend its true architecture. How might we overturn this racial architecture that is built inside Christian life and practice in the West. Willie Jennings. Okay, so I'll move on. The book proceeds. I was teaching a graduate course in ministry leadership when a 22-year-old student interrupted my lecture with a bizarre question. What do you say to your friends who are leaving the church and arguing that Christianity is the white man's religion. I was taken aback by the question. First, it was unrelated to the topic of the day. Second, I wondered who 
in the world would argue such a thing. The class discussion that ensued opened up a world of discovery. I couldn't shake the conversation out of my mind for several weeks. Since then, I've learned that many young people of color across North America, all over Europe and throughout Africa are often weary of Christianity because of current religious alignments with, divi with divisive politics, not to mention the global history of pain already associated with branches of Christianity. Many Christians, like I was, are unaware of the current conversations about this on the streets. My concern and subsequent research led me to write this book. The question of whether Christianity is a trustworthy religion for everyone is not new. Over the years, many people and groups have asked this question. For example, the Nation of Islam was convinced that Christianity was the white man's religion, dating back to the Jim Crow era of racial segregation. It was, it is deeply concerning that since then, after all the changes that have taken place, this question has resurfaced. A new wave of religious skeptics has arrived with serious questions about faith, identity, and the struggles of everyday life. From followers of the Nation of Islam and the 5% Nation of, to students of science and conscientiousness and others, there is a circumspection regarding oppressive attributes and beliefs associated with the history of Western Christian practice. Times have changed, but similar observations that provoked the question years ago are provoking skepticism today. The student's question brought to, my, brought to mind three distinct situations, one of which occurred in 2002 when I was a student at Yale Divinity School just outside the barbershop on Dixwell Avenue in New Haven, Connecticut. A group of self-identified black Jewish men sold kosher hot dogs. One day, one of them stopped me and asked who I was, where I was from, and what I did. My interest in theological studies caught his attention. He felt the need to share with me that black people are the true Jews. To be honest, the conversation was rather intriguing. It was my first encounter with an African-American who claimed to have found his true identity. His serious and intellect conversation kept my attention for longer than I intended. Before this point, my only point of reference to black Jews was Ethiopian Jews. It was clear, however, that the brother in New Haven was not talking about the Jews who are native to Ethiopia. He was saying that African Americans are Israelites and don't know it. Several years later, I was invited to speak on urban evangelism from the Solid Rock Church Conference at the Founders Inn in Virginia Beach. A pastor from Washington, D.C. expressed concern about a group of African Americans who seemed to connect well with the young black men in Washington's distressed areas. He explained that these men wore 
Yamuks called themselves war Yamuks called themselves Israelites and sought to convince other young men that Christianity is the white man's religion and that black people are the true Israelites. It was an earful. Immediately, I made the connection with the black Israelite I had previously met in New Haven. In 2011, I went with a group of college students to New York for an urban plunge excursion. We partnered with the New York School of Urban Ministry, Urban Ministry, NYSUM. Students interested in urban evangelism joined us on 125th Street to pray with passerby, with passersby. Energized by the pedestrians' openness to spontaneous prayer, some of the students wandered a bit further down 125th Street to a bus stop near the Apollo Theater. More people to pray with, they thought. From a distance, I noticed that a few of the students were having a lively conversation. So I went to join them. As I approached, I realized that the young Sumerians were in an intensive theological conversation with brothers from the Nation of Islam. With a quick talking New York style, the Nation of Islam brothers were trying to persuade our slower talking Virginian Sumerians that Christianity is the white man's religion. The brothers from the Nation of Islam were quite versed in the tenets of their own faith as well as Christian scripture. However, I noticed how they misquoted the scriptures to suit their own agenda. While I do not remember the specific passage, I recall inserting myself into the conversation and calling them out on the misquotation. I then abruptly invited my students to return to return to the rest of our colleagues on the other end of the street. As I left the Brothers from the Nation of Islam, I remember thinking, our students have got to know the scriptures. In 2017, Bishop T.D. Jakes shared with me that he was planning to host a global think tank on the African seabed of Christianity at that year's International Pastors and Leadership Conference. Ironically, the conversation with the bishop was only a few days after my seminary student shared his concern about the growing skepticism that many urban youth and young adults have about Christianity. I soon learned that pastors all over the Western world are concerned about the foothold the black Hebrew Israelite movement and other religious groups are gaining on urban areas. 8,000 pastors and leaders gathered at Bishop Jake's global think tank that addressed the African presence in the Bible. They wanted tools to prepare their congregations to defend the faith on in everyday conversations, such as around dinner tables, on street corners, and in barbershops and beauty salons. As a whole, millennials are more educated than previous generations. The combination of the more educated and the un and undereducated creates a tension of knowledge in society and rises a lot of questions 
Some of these questions are about religion. In an internet age where information is rampant, it is hard to distinguish valid information from what is invalid. People are getting information from everywhere. Much of it is laced with uninformed opinions. We're often caught in a maze of uncertainty trying to determine what is trustworthy. For this generation, religion must touch the heart and not simply mandate rules. Touching the heart goes beyond cozy emotions and speaks to practical dynamics of faith. In other words, genuine religion touches the streets. Its campaigns, causes, and, and advocates for justice. It helps people gain a moral compass, discover their identity, and develop gifts, which is exactly what my family and church provided for me at a young age. I grew up in a small Pentecostal church in Manchester, Georgia. Pentecostal churches are often called sanctified churches because they place a heavy emphasis on living holy. While the sanctified church emphasized personal piety, it also drew on scripture to cultivate our moral conscience, illuminate our personal identity, and strengthen us in our gifts. My dad and mom started our church in the early 1970s, and most of our members were African American. My formative years of faith were rooted and grounded in my experience with God. Our church was a place of refuge, encouragement, and empowerment. We had a community made up of everyone from single parent families to two parent families with tons of children. My parents had eight kids and another couple had 14. We were like one big family who loved God and each other. Church was everything for us. We worshiped, we worshiped up to four times a week. Our faith taught us that Jesus understands our social and personal situations, a truth that becomes so deeply rooted in our faith orientation that for us, Jesus was black like us. Don't get me wrong, our church did not preach that Jesus is African American. What I mean is that when we read the Bible, we interpreted Jesus through the lens of our experience. For black people, blackness is more than a color. It is a rich heritage, a contribution to the world. For blacks with a history of slavery, to be black involves a history of pain and social struggle. Black Christian history, the one that framed the origins of black churches, passed down a great grassroots understanding that Jesus loves us amid a hateful world. Jesus journeys with us through life's ups and downs. He is with us when down in the dumps, just like God was with Israel during their time in Egypt. Just as God imputed identity to Israel and made a people of them, our identity was formed in Christ. We are Jesus people. For centuries, millions of black people have relied heavily on that identity. More than 200 years of slavery and almost a century of Jim Crow honed a common faith in black churches that I hope 
must be in God. We have believed that he would make a way when none was visible. And in our little church in Manchester, we witnessed the Lord do just that, time after time. We experienced God as a father for the fatherless, a mother for the motherless, a friend for the friendless, water for the thirsty, and food for the hungry. Jesus sided with us amid pain, frustration, agony, and loss. The redeeming Christ saved us from sin. The crucified Christ acquainted himself with black suffering. The loving God would help us succeed against all odds. Again and again, my life story confirms such a God. My dad even established a school at our church. It was a place to deepen our faith through a Christian education curriculum, provided an escape from youthful vices, and helped the children of the church navigate the contours of Southern racism. Even in the 1990s, the black experience in the Deep South was tough. But for most of my young life, I didn't realize it. When I discovered the reality of racism, I was shocked out of my mind. We had very friendly relationships with white Pentecostal congregations. We visited their churches and they came to ours. But there were nagging reminders that the two churches were different. Partly the black orientation to church differed from the way white people experienced church in the Deep South. For example, one time our church took a youth group to a skating rink in Griffin, Georgia. Because it was the closest location to Manchester with a weekly Christian music skate night. While at the skating rink, my dad, our pastor, and a white pastor developed a friendship. Each week they would chat about the faith, church life, and vision for their ministries. At one Christian skate night, the white pastor told my dad that a black man was coming to his church, but he didn't really know how to relate to him. So he suggested that the man come to our church. Never mind the distance from Griffin to Manchester is about 40 miles, which is an hour drive time. Conversely, our church is focused on helping black people succeed. My apologies for the interruption. Conversely, our church's focus on helping black people succeed in Christ was not always an inviting experience for white people. For example, during one of my dad's practical sermons on the necessity of personal responsibility, he paused and asked the congregation a question something like, what does God want us to be responsible Excuse me, why does God want us to be responsible and work? Forgetting that we had a white visitor that day, excuse me, a brother in the church responded so we can pay these white folks their money. Only after he spoke did he remember the visitor and quickly say, oh, excuse me. Many of us laughed, including the visitor, but this story illustrates how our faith was formed within a context of the black experience against 
a dominant white society that we viewed as indifferent to black people. One traditional feature of African-American churches was that they helped blacks synthesize their faith within the broader context of white economic and ideological superiority. The way we learned about God, Jesus, and the Bible helped us succeed in the white world. However, in predominantly white society, most white people can't relate to being in a situation where they are the minority. Most could probably live their lives without ever experiencing a majority black context. Black churches in the Deep South not only constituted a majority of black people, they also preserved some of the qualities passed down from the slave and Jim Crow era religious traditions. This is probably the case because there was really no theological or liturgical model to which to subscribe. It was just the way black people did church. Their spirituality was in extra, let me get this word right, their spirituality was inextricably formed alongside their experience. Princeton religion professor Albert J. Rubotu points out the slave's historical identity as a unique people was peculiarly, peculiarly their own. In the spirituals, the slaves affirmed and reaffirmed that identity religiously as they suffered and celebrated their journey from slavery to freedom. One must not dismiss cultural identity too quickly. African American spirituality was formed through the pressures of oppression. Black human and Christian identity were shaped in spite of a society that rejected both black families and churches, safeguarded young minds and lives from mainstream and identity adversity. I am blessed with parents and grandparents who, in some ways, continued the historic African-American approach to childbearing. Although nearly a hundred years had passed since the abolition of slavery, my grandparents grew up in Georgia during Jim Crow's segregation. My parents caught the tail end of it as well. The attitudes, the permeated Jim Crow, and the structural systems set in place from the nation's inception in many ways continued until this day. So my parents invested a lot of time and support in my siblings and me. At the time, I did not realize how much they shielded us from the ugly experiences they had endured. Now that I'm an adult, some of the funny but serious experiences they shared from their life under the Jim Crow era's segregation come to mind. For example, Dad went to a restaurant when he was a teenager. After walking through the door, the owner, 
a grumpy white man said, we don't serve, and he used the N-word. Dan said that he humorously responded, oh good, I don't want one of those. I want a burger, then took off running for fear the man would try to hurt or kill him. In the Deep South, in those days, it was not always clear who were members of the Ku Klux Klan, aka KKK. Black churches were very helpful in navigating a society in which we lived, but felt powerless to change. In addition to family and nurture, black churches gave my brothers and me a platform to express our musical talent and preaching. Our singing group, the A-Boys, later renamed A7, went from church to church singing and proclaiming the gospel. Our intense involvement in church shielded us from much of the lingering racial problems of the Deep South. They made us feel important, loved, and affirmed. Who could lose with that kind of support? Reflecting on it though, I have mixed emotions. On the one hand, it was helpful that my parents safeguarded us and that our church provided a refuge from racism. It helped that my family was grounded in the black church at an early age. I often wonder what life would be like if I didn't have the foundation that I did. By the time I was exposed to society's original sin, my faith was strong in the God I had met long before. On the other hand, it was hard to find my own voice. Even worse, I struggled with second-guessing my ideas. When one holds back from sharing their perspective, society is cheated of their contributions to human progress. For me, second-guessing traces back to my childhood. So many young people of color suppress their ideas for fear of societal contempt. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. encouraged blacks to be leaders. I think this is one of the reasons I love his messages so much. King said, a genuine leader is not a searcher for conscientious, but a modeler of conscientious consensus, excuse me, not conscientious, a molder of consensus. King lived leadership that modeled consensus. However, his outspokenness resulted in his assassination. Black parents who remember his murder face a moral dilemma in child rearing. Do they want their children to live or do they want them to speak their minds King would be an anomaly if he were the only example. But the corridors of history are decorated with heroes who spoke up for justice and lost their lives as a result of it. In spite of the exemplary work of our forefathers and foremothers who gave their lives for the freedom we enjoy, many people continue to live with the same quandary. Should I speak up? or keep silent. 
should I act or refrain from doing anything at all? Should I stand boldly or acquiesce? Certainly, everyone can relate to this point. Every human being confronts a similar moral dilemma. Many people experience loss simply because they speak up for truth, are rejected for sharing their stories, and are excluded for pointing out problems that adversely affect, its, affect society. At best, many have learned to go along, to get along, because if they fight back, they might not live to tell. Growing up in Manchester, racial problems in my little hometown pale to, com to comparison to some other southern towns. I never met anyone wearing white sheets and hoods. For most of my early life, I thought I had never met a member of the KKK. However, when I was a student at Lagrange, LaGrange College, I spent a lot of time in the community and became friends with a white classmate who grew up in LaGrange. He knew a lot about the town and he knew a lot of the people. One day he shared with me that someone we knew from the community was part of the KKK. She was actually one of their leaders who led local gatherings which were then nonviolent as far as we knew. When my friend told me this, it freaked me out. Had I lived in a bubble all this time, I was under no illusion that everything was hunky-dory with regard to race relations, but I was swiftly learning that I was not that far removed from racist history. In fact, it may have been more dangerous because the lines of separation were not as clear as they were under Jim Crow. Another time during college, my brother and I decided to branch out and fellowship with white Pentecostal churches. Although we were raised in a majority black church and in all black par parishional school, we had adjusted quickly to a majority white college. I preached at a special service one Sunday night at a white Pentecostal church in LaGrange. It was packed with young black and white people, mostly from the college. Since the church had been dwindling in attendance, the pastor was particularly excited to see so many young people that night. So he asked my brother and me for a meeting to discuss joining the staff. At the interview, the first question he asked was, what do you all think about interracial marriage? Shocked by the question, we said, we have no problem with it. The pastor openly expressed concern that if we were to join his staff, we might fall in love with one of the white women in the church. He then explained, I would be concerned about those poor children. They would not know if they were white or black. Needless to say, our working relationship with their church did not materialize. Confused and feeling rejected, I struggled to grasp why the anointing on my life could not overcome my blackness. One may question my reasons for bringing up my college days in this book. Some would say that times have changed and this story is anarchism. Anna, an, woo, 
is anarchist and anachron oh let me skip that one wow anachronistic excuse me but that's but let's not jump to conclusions so quickly if Trayvon Martin Michael Brown Eric Gardner Sandra Bland Ayanna Stanley Jones Maya Hall Jamel Robertson Botham Jean Atatiana Jefferson and others could come back to life, they would argue otherwise. They are dead. There is just no convincing rationale for their deaths. Surprisingly, the courts did not even convict their assassins. Could it be that their blackness posed a threat to public safety? When black and white Christian leaders don't work together to address such public concerns, Young people tend to make sweeping conclusions that Christianity remains part of the race problem. While I hope society finally moves beyond the race problem, we must not deny that the problem remains a reality. I have been followed in stores and overlooked for opportunities for which I was more qualified than the persons hired. On two separate occasions, my brothers and I have stopped at gas stations to fill up and grab a snack only to be stopped by a white cashier who told us, all y'all can't come in here at the same time. Because we were black, we were criminal suspects upon arrival. When I share this experience with my white friends, they are appalled. Groups of white men enter stores all the time and never have this kind of experience. It is all the more heartbreaking when negative attitudes against other people are either embodied or perpetuated by people who claim to be Christians. When I discovered this, I was dumbfounded. I had come to know Jesus as one who loves everybody. Why in the world? Don't his people do the same? And I will end here for today. Please excuse again my break and my stumble over a few words. I pray that you will be intrigued and will await the next session as we move into demanding a new faith. But this is still the striking question under, is Christianity the white man's religion? How the book is good news for people of, of all color. Author Antipas L. Harris. Thank you.